Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Welcome back to the History of England, episode 372. Go on vigorously. Before we kick off, just a wee while ago, I came across a podcast that I thought you would all enjoy. And whether or not you will, I certainly enjoyed it. It's a tie-up between two folks exploring some of the folk stories of England county by county. There's history, folk tales, and creative storytelling. But enough of that. Here is one solitary minute for Martin and Eleanor of the Three Ravens podcast to tell you all about it. Are you ever curious about what's happening in the hedgerows just over history's shoulder? I'm Martin. And I'm Eleanor. And we're the hosts of the Three Ravens podcast, a podcast all about English myth and folklore. Each week we gather round the campfire and talk about one of England's 39 historic counties, discussing its history, legends and traditions. Then we tell a local folktale with a Three Ravens twist. Still to come this season, we've got many more stories, like the tale of Gog and Magog, the giants of London. A naughty demon turned to stone in Lancashire. And for our season finale, Suffolk's own Wild Man of Orford. And lots of other superstitions, charms and folk remedies. I've still got that headache, you know. That powdered moss you gave me from the dead man's skull, it didn't help a bit. (laughs) If this all sounds like fun, search the Three Ravens podcast in your podcast app. Or go to our website at threeravenspodcast.com. And remember, don't whistle until you're out of the woods. Right, back to 1640 then. When Charles got home and sat down for his evening beans on toast with Mrs King, with Worcester sauce, of course, and when he'd simmered down after ranting to his wife about his day at the office, 
he was probably forced to admit that his latest parliament had not been one of life's high points. He decided he really didn't need any grief from any other direction for a while. It had quite enough, so he sent news to Scotland that the Scottish Parliament, due to meet after its long prorogation, was to be prorogued again. Well, back on the theme that the Scottish Revolution is super-radical in constitutional terms in its own right, the MPs assembled in Edinburgh anyway. Now, the Scots had a long tradition of resistance theory, resisting the ungodly king, all the way back to George Buchanan, who ironically had been James I's tutor, and who apparently took note of the old saying, spare the rod, spoil the child, which gave James nightmares to his dying day. George had argued that if a king did not live up to his contract in terms of promoting the true Protestant religion, he could be discarded. And the Parliament, rather than going home as commanded by their king, had something of a full and frank exchange of views about this topic. Now, they stopped well short of anything like deposing Charles, but they did decide they were perfectly entitled to go ahead with the Parliament off their own bat. And in days, it enacted a constitutional revolution. The Lords of the Articles, through which mechanism the king had controlled the agenda, were deleted. It passed a triennial act. Now a parliament must be held every three years, at least, whether the king called it or whether the king did not. They ratified the acts of the General Assembly and the National Covenant, and they appointed an executive committee, which replaced any idea of the Privy Council, and then they hopped off home. All of this assumed that the acts they passed were fully legal and did not need royal assent. Now that, my friends, is a revolution. When the National Covenant committed its people to defending royal power, it appears to have been fibbing. Under Argyle's leadership, the committee launched a campaign into the Highlands and Northeast, removing any potential sources of opposition. The Catholic Earl of Huntley fled to England for refuge. This was no doubt sensible, but Argyle's dominance was now irritating the already flaky support of people like Montrose. Hold that thought about Montrose, hold that thought about Montrose and pop it away somewhere where you can get at it quickly, because you will need it in the future. If there had been any doubt that another war was in the offing, which there really wasn't, the June Parliament sent it down to the vasty deeps. In London, Charles had already convened his eight-man Scotland committee after the failure of the short parliament. He still kept discussions close and away from the main Privy Council, which they found deeply frustrating, given the subject's importance. The Earl of Northumberland complained that Charles communicates nothing of the affairs in Scotland, so we are as great strangers to all those proceedings as if we'd lived in Constantinople. So the very evening of the dissolution, the 5th of May 1640, Charles and his Committee for Scottish Affairs met, with sombre faces and with heavy hearts. What to do? Henry Vane Sr. sat in one corner, taking careful notes of the discussions. And the topic was, what next? Negotiate or war, flight or fight? Strafford leaned forward and brusquely cut through the witterings of Lord and the committee with all the force and intensity for which Charles valued him. Go vigorously, or let them alone, 
no defensive war. Get on with a vigorous war, as you first designed, loose and absolved from all rules of government, being reduced to extreme necessity. Everything is to be done that power might admit. They refusing, you are acquitted towards God and man. You have an army in Ireland you may employ here to reduce this kingdom. Confident as anything under heaven, Scotland shall not hold out five months. One the summer well employed will do it. It was a big moment, both in political terms and for Strafford personally. Put this thought also somewhere where you can get it easily, for you will need it. Charles needed little persuading, actually, so it was to be war. Preparations went ahead as well as might be, though, of course, nothing had really changed since the last time as far as money was concerned, and in fact, it had got worse. The treasury had been emptied by last year's debacle. No one was happy to pay ship money anymore, nor a second bout of coat and conduct. After all, they hadn't been happy about paying the first one either. Recruitment was even harder, and the intake even grubbier and less well-equipped. These problems kept delaying assembly of the army until July the 1st. Meanwhile, the government resorted to a combination of wishful thinking and forceful and borderline legal actions. Well, not borderline, actually. Over the line. Charles hoped his rapprochement with Spain would deliver him an army of experienced veterans, which was optimistic, given that just a couple of years ago, Olivares had mooted sending 100,000 men to Ireland to set it free from the English crown once and forever. But even if the possibility had ever been there, a rebellion in Catalonia nixed it, stone dead. The Spaniards had failed Charles again. When would he learn? Well, on that, it just so happens that £130,000 worth of Spanish bullion was sitting in the Tower of London waiting to be minted into Spanish currency as we speak. So, the Treasury borrowed it to pay the bills, promising the Spanish faithfully to repay the money in six months' time. Of course, the merchants of London gasped with shock at the damage done to their trading reputation. Next, an East Indiaman arrived, packed with pepper. So the government half-inched all that too and sold it for about 30% of its proper value or pepper value, half-half. The London merchants held their collective head in their collective hands in despair. Then Strafford had another scheme, debase the currency to a quarter of its face value and issue copper coins. The London merchants threw up their arms in the air, ran around like E.T. on speed, crying blue murder and the scheme was hurriedly withdrawn. The long and short was that quite a lot of cash was raised by means that were undeniably dodgy. Meanwhile, the failure of the short parliament doesn't seem to have given Charles pause for reflection that maybe he was driving the coach and four of state too hard. It was the convention that when parliament was dissolved, the convocation of the church went with it. But on this occasion, Charles decided that custom and practice was inconvenient to him, and therefore he broke the rules and had convocation continue, because he and Lord had 17 more canons to add to the canon of canon law. Pun, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, pun intended, and I'm feeling a little smug about it, Okay, The 17 new canons were delightfully and blithely blind to any worries about royal authority or Arminian rights. 
Ministers were now to affirm the divine rights of kings explicitly. Communion tables were to be placed altarwise and railed. All the sort of jazz on which we've spilt so much ink and milk already. Worst of all, though, there was a new oath to be sworn by all ministers. It became known as the etc. oath, and I'm going to quote a little bit of it for you. All the ministers were to swear not to attempt to alter the government of this church by archbishops, bishops, deans and archdeacons, etc. Well, hang on. What do you mean, etc.? What might etc. come to include then? Oh, well, we thought having an English pope would be a good idea. You know, archbishops, etc. The oath was fiercely opposed. In the South East Midlands, just for instance, 27 ministers met together at the Swan Inn at Kettering to discuss the oath and what they did about it. Together, they came to a conclusion, never to take the oath, but rather to lose our livings. All the canons raised a storm. 17,500 copies were printed and distributed so everyone really knew them in some detail. And meanwhile, another publication hit the streets of London, illegally as it happens, printed in Amsterdam, finding its passage to London by the secret ways only ragged people know. This publication would have been less to Charles and Lord's liking than the canons, it must be said. In fact, it was highly suggestive. Is it not now high time to stand up as one man to defend themselves and their country so the king reform himself? A suggestion that ordinary people should force the king's hand, correct his incorrect views. Radical in 1640, most radical. Edward I would have eaten the nation's collective liver raw without HP sauce. The peasants were revolting. Resistance then was growing and growing at a number of levels, not just ministers of the church. The City of London remained obdurate despite the royalist inclinations of its Lord Mayor, Richard Gurney. But Charles piled on the pressure by other ways. So given the refusal of the London Common Council to offer a loan, he then went for the divide and rule approach. The aldermen were individually told to list the richest men in their wards so that Charles could levy a forced loan on those individuals. Only seven aldermen had the courage to refuse his request. Four made a public stand in front of the courts. One of those was a merchant in Puritan called Isaac Pennington, a warden of the fishmongers, but making his money from the Levant trade. He'd been an MP in the short parliament, and though he would escape punishment for this, he was increasingly a link between parliament and the merchants of the city an example of the growing importance of the middling sort in politics. Another alderman, Thomas Soame, proudly faced the king's bench down and announced he would not be an informer because he had been an honest man before he was an alderman and desired to be an honest man still. His declaration was widely reported. All of these feelings of discontent reached the ears and hearts of the apprentice boys. Now there comes a time when we need to talk about London apprentices because you are going to hear a lot about them. You are probably aware that for many centuries a standard part of the process of growing up and getting a position in trade was to become an apprentice. They were pretty much always young men until the 1650s when more women began to become apprenticed in trades like millinery. 
So the normal gig was to be signed up into a tradesman's household at the age of 17 for a seven-year stint. While an apprentice, they were not allowed to get married until their term came to an end. They received very few wages, but they were given full board. Once the seven years were up, they might join a guild or become a citizen. So young men came from all over the country to find a position in that greatest opportunity of them all, London. There could be around 4,000 apprentices in the city at any one time. And they used a network of kin and family connections that could find a contact in the city to place them in a reputable household. The trouble is, they were often not very reputable themselves, or at least not very reputable when they all got together and had a hoolie. They had a holiday on Shrove Tuesday, actually. They all had a holiday that day. And there was very often the day to stay inside and lock your doors, because it often ended in a riot. In 1617, they got into the cockpit theatre in Drury Lane, wrecked and ransacked to their heart's content, until three of them were actually shot. At that point, the party carried on to Finsbury, where they broke open the jail. Ah, what it is to be young. Good, honest fun breaking open jails. So the thing was then that apprentices could be stirred up into political trouble, and people kind of knew that. But many of them also were genuinely radical of their own account. And again, that link between political protest and resistance to religious change is strong there as well. So they'd rioted in defence of John Lilburn as he'd been whipped behind the cart's arse in 1639 because they blamed Lord for it. And as the short parliament was still sitting, a rumour reached the Privy Council that, that if parliament was dissolved, the London apprentices were planning a riot. Not that I'm telling you by this that Charles had a sophisticated secret service worthy of 1984. Someone had noticed a load of broadsheets plastered on the London walls saying, hey, let's go and attack Archbishop Lord if Parliament is dissolved. Didn't really need to even add two to two. So when the 11th of May dawned then, the streets were packed with apprentice boys, somewhere between 500 and 1,200 of them. They marched on Lambeth Palace, home of the Archbishop of Canterbury in London, of course, determined to get their hands on William Lord himself. As they marched, they were encouraged by a 16-year-old lad, a mariner called Thomas Benstead, and an apprentice called John Archer. All together they marched, and young Thomas Benstead became their drummer boy, and they matched their feet to the beat of his drum. When they arrived at the palace, they found Lord was not an idiot. He'd already legged it across the river to the safety of Whitehall. So eventually the apprentices dispersed, shouting loudly that they'd find Lord somewhere, sometime. And maybe at that the chaos would have been over. But instead, the militia chose that moment to arrest a bunch of the ones that identified as ringleaders and sling them into the White Lion prison in Southwark. Among them, our out-of-work mariner, John Archer. Well, that started them up again. So on the 13th of May, another riot broke out and White Lion Prison was broken into and the inmates all released. But John Archer was no longer there. The king had ordered him moved to a safer prison, the Tower of London, and Lord Mayor Gurney ordered out the trained bands anyway who dispersed the second load of riots and restored calm. John Archer, meanwhile, had been taken to the Tower for a specific purpose. That specific purpose was to be tortured on the rack so that he could reveal what other ringleaders there were. I say other ringleaders because John was thought to be one of them. 
Judicial torture was illegal in England unless ordered by the king, so the order held Charles's signature. Archer is the last person to be submitted to legal torture in England. I feel I have told you this before, but maybe it's in a members podcast series. Maybe the one about common law and the British Constitution. Anyway, once tortured and whatever could be extracted had been extracted, Archer was executed. Alongside him and others was our 16-year-old Thomas Benstead, whose drumming was ruled to have whipped up the crowd and therefore been treason. News spread out, as news will. So Edward Neal wrote from Shelley in Essex and told his fellow parishioners that they would shortly rise in the country, there being no laws now, and the first houses they would pull down would be the houses of those that took part with the bishops. There's a couple of things about that gobbit. Neil was specifically thinking here about his own parson, actually, and encouraging opposition to his parson's opinions. And yet again, you can see the close link between religion and protest and even violent uprising. As Charles and the Privy Council struggled to raise a new army, a propaganda war was going on, a war of words. The Covenanters had been spectacularly good at it in Scotland, and their talents did not desert them now. Books and pamphlets were printed in Edinburgh and Amsterdam, smuggled into England, from there spread out into the provinces. So our 27 ministers at the Swan Inn in Kettering also had a pamphlet outlining grievances from Scotland read out at the meeting, no doubt receiving wise nods and grunts of assent in return. The Covenanters resolutely pitched their message as conservatively as they could. Their case was about religion, not about the king's secular authority in any way. They didn't want to scare the horses of the English royalists, or not yet anyway. And they stressed the common cause with the English. They both faced a popish plot, led by the king's evil counsellors Lord and Strafford. But a careful reading of the text would be enough to see that they were in fact very radical. They pointed out that as an absentee king, Charles was breaking a contract of kingship which required kings to be rightly informed by their people. You might notice this shared little with the idea of the divine right of kings. They protested that they would never go to war except in self-defence and provoked by English action, on which more later, for the defence of religion, liberties and lives. Charles took a bit longer to get going on the propaganda front. The propaganda he started to produce showed that he did understand the kind of objections that Lord's reforms were provoking, so he made sure to commission the work from Scottish Calvinists or the few remaining English Calvinist bishops. Trouble was, the kind of thing they produced was not ideally designed to convince ordinary people, coming in the form, as it did, of an expensive 430-page book. But there was a strategy at last. They were seeking to give the elites the ammunition to combat the claims of the Covenanters and spread the word. They were very careful not to give way to populist appeals to anti-Scottish prejudice. Charles was, after all, a proud king of Scots, as well as English, Welsh and Irish. But many of his supporters and ministers had fewer qualms about that. There's a man called Nehemiah Wallington who kept a very famous diary during these years. He was a Londoner, an artisan, a wood-turner in the Turner's Guild. His diary gives a rare insight into how ordinary people saw events, albeit very much from their Puritan angle. 
He noted in his diary how Scots were mocked and scoffed at by some, calling them rebels, and that books were made of them and ballad songs by every rascal at the corners of our street. How effective Charles's propaganda was, he's debatable. Amongst the godly, as we've said, the minister Thomas Case in Norfolk was probably much more typical when he preached the sermon for the good success of the Scotch rebels and assume he's not talking about a non-conformist whisky either. On increasing occasions, public articulation of resistance theory appeared in English pulpits too. There was also, of course, an English tradition of resistance theory back from the days of John Ponnet and the Marian persecutions. In August 1640, when the King had left for the North to put down the Scottish Rebellion, and in fact was actually facing them at Newburn at the time, one Calibute Downing delivered a sermon to the Honourable Artillery Company. We should take a couple of minutes to digress and talk about said Artillery Company, because in the web of allegiances and politics that was the mighty City of London, it was to play a role. It had been established in 1611 and had its roots in an Elizabethan militia formed to fight the Catholic threat from Europe. It was essentially a body of voluntary infantry. It never lost its spirit of Protestant patriotism. It held within it a number of notable merchants, many of whom would remain at the side of the king throughout. Marmaduke Rawdon, for example, would be with the king at Oxford and defend Basinghouse against all comers for the royal cause. But in the end, Rawdon would leave because the company was increasingly dominated by Puritans. Its president in 1640 was the Puritan militant and future regicide John Venn, and its captain of the militia was Philip Skippen. Skippen is going to have a long career in the service of Parliament and the Commonwealth. He'll be a key figure in the control of London, one of Cromwell's major generals in 1657. By 1640, he already had a reputation as a brave and tough soldier, so he'd fought from his early 20s in the Palatinate for Protestant causes, and like his later boss, Thomas Fairfax, and his later adversary, Lord Hotton, had fought under Lord de Vere. In the Palatinate, he'd married Maria Comes, and together they had a family of eight children. He'd fought at Breda in 1625, and there he'd fought off 200 Spanish with 30 pikemen by push of pike while having been shot in the neck. So, you know, this is the stuff of ripping yarns, biggles and all that. This guy knew how to fight. He returned to England by 1634 and inherited a small estate from an unk. So basically, the lights of Van and Skippen found in the Honourable Artillery Company a place during the personal rule to meet, to meet discreetly with other reformers, get together with them, exercise arms, swap opinions, discuss possible future tactics. So just as it would cease to be a good home for royalists like Rowden, it was the perfect place for radical clerics like Calibute Downing to go and speak. He argued then that it was the king that bore responsibility for the state of the nation, that religion trumped the state. And he declared that when a party in power breaks the laws of the land, subjects must make a stand. This was a message of resistance too rich for 1640, and Downing had to flee London for his pains, taking refuge on the Earl of Warwick's estate in Essex. So London in particular was awash with rumour, opinion, arguments, propaganda, even antagonism. The pupils were an extraordinarily and highly effective channel of communication for all views, and the alehouses were equally so. 
Charles was given to arguing that state policy was a matter for the arcane mysteries of the monarch. He'd been horrified if he'd spent a few minutes on the streets of London listening to all the talk. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What then of the Junto and their meetings at Warwick House in Hoban? Information is a bit shadowy, but it does seem they were talking, not just with each other, but with the Scots. Now that the first objective had been achieved, Parliament had failed, there must be a second Parliament where Charles would be helpless to resist and he would be forced to a settlement. Now, let's not beat around the bush here. Warwick, Say and Seal, Brooke, Essex, were essentially talking treason here, were they not? They wanted the King defeated. They wanted the Scottish knife at the royal throat. A royal victory against the Covenanters at this point would be unthinkable, unthinkable. Then, with the Scottish army in the north, they could use that leverage to roll back Arminianism, tie the king into a re-established constitution which would make the settlement irreversible. There could be no way back once done, because few trusted the king to stick by his promises anymore. The Junto therefore wanted the Scots to attack before Charles could be ready. Argyle and the Covenanters had, of course, grandly declared they would be purely defensive, so they were reluctant. How to justify an attack on England? Both parties found a useful ally in one Thomas Saville. History is, by and large, a good deal more personal than we think it is, isn't it? There are lots of things that make us act in certain ways, and some of them are not connected with great events like liberty or the rights of the people or the rise of the middling sort and the advent of capitalism and all that. The Savile family were a Yorkshire family and not well enamoured of the Wentworths. In fact, they'd been having a good old Barney for some time about which family was first on the invite list in God's own county. Maybe it's that which spurred Thomas Savile on, or, or maybe it was indeed simply a love of the English constitution. Either way, it was through him that the Junto peers sent a letter to Argyle and the Covenanters. The letter promised support should they invade and urged them to do so before Charles was ready but they stopped short of saying that they would fight for the Scots. That would be out and out treason. Now for Argyle when he got the letter this was not enough he needed something more specific. It seems Argyle then received a new letter from said Junto Lords promising military support too. If this is true it also seems that the Junto knew nothing of it because Savile had forged their signatures. Savile is an interesting case. Despite all this, he will end up on the king's side, ennobled as Earl of Sussex, after Wentworth was gone. Coincidence or cause? Important not to confuse correlation with causation, obviously. Meanwhile, more above board, rumours circulated that the Warwick House peers were preparing a petition. And here is a neat illustration, should you need it, of the practical importance of knowing your history should he be planning, planning a rebellion. They reckoned they'd found a statute from the 1258 Parliament that 12 peers could summon a Parliament. So, 
the junta was preparing such a document. But by August, the king felt he was ready, or ready as he'd ever be. His army was considerably more manky than the previous effort. Sadly, there's evidence that the Yorkshire-trained band, for example, were deliberately persuaded to drag their feet so they'd not arrive at the party on time, and many duly did. However, for future reference for the history of Yorkshire and the Civil Wars, one of the most influential Yorkshire gentry families, the Fairfaxes, were indeed part of the King's army, as they had been in the First Bishop's War too. Thomas Fairfax will be the general of the parliamentary forces. Here is evidence again, should you need any, that allegiances could have gone either way when the balloon goes up. No one was even imagining civil war yet, of course, or none but the most extreme anyway, but not even them. There was a lot of lawlessness from the soldiers. Some of the officers appeared to be rather more worried about their own men than they were about the Scots. Austin Woolrich writes that we only know of two officers actually killed by their own men. I mean, only? Is this common? I have to say, it would be difficult to fight a battle effectively while looking over your shoulder at your own blokes. On the way up, there were also numerous examples of violence, prisons broken open, altar rails smashed. Commanders were again a problem, with illness playing a key role. There is incidentally a definite role played by illness in the civil wars. It's difficult to keep up, but the Earl of Northumberland, the favoured commander, was ill and unavailable. Strafford was therefore made general instead, but he had gout, so he handed over to Viscount Conway. Fairfax and Cromwell both will suffer from extended bouts of illness at key times too. Anyway, just to buy the by. So, Viscount Conway planned to defend England along the line of the River Tyne, although much of his army was actually back in York. Across the border, a few miles away, was Alexander Leslie and the Covenanters, and on the 3rd of August, 1640, they are in committee. Argyle and the Committee of Estates and the senior army commanders. At the meeting, it is solemnly decided that this time they could not wait for the English to attack. They must get their retaliation in first. Not everyone agreed. Montrose and a group of peers responded by drawing up and signing the Cumbernauld Band. A rather vague bond between them to fight for the king and covenant, but to resist, and I quote, the particular and indirect practising of a few. Hmm, wonder who they're thinking of. Argyle, maybe? Maybe things going too fast and too fast for them? Possibly, maybe, perhaps. On Cumbernauld, by the way, you might like to know that I played hockey against Cumbernauld Town once as a posh English student at St Andrews. Scariest game of my life, I have to say. It lives with me still. But cross the border, Leslie did on the 20th of August, while Charles was still on the road from London to York. And they prayed and they sang as they marched. In their hearts, they hoped to receive a welcome from many English common cause and all that sort of thing, and were dismayed that they did not. But they did impress everyone with their restraint, paying for goods and that sort of thing. That will get mighty strained over time, but initially, they may can achieve a good effort. Leslie was then bold. He bypassed Berwick with its garrison, and he struck towards the Tyne, aiming to force the river and threaten Newcastle, and to march round Newcastle to attack its undefended underbelly, the south. As he marched, a group of twelve peers, rather than focusing on fighting with the king, were incarcerated at Bedford House on the Strand in London, the likes of Warwick, Sayenseal, Essex, Brook, Bedford. We'll talk of that in a mo. But distressingly enough for Charles on his way to the war, he also received a massive petition from the people of Yorkshire asking for a new parliament. Get away with you! 
The English commander Conway guessed correctly that Leslie was seeking to cross the Tyne, not pause at Berwick. He guessed wrong, though, that he'd do that 20 miles upstream at Hexham, which is where Conway put his main force. In fact, Leslie tried to cross much closer to Newcastle at Newburn. They overwhelmed a small English force there, which therefore became the first Scottish victory on English soil, and not without trying, I may say, since 1388 and the Battle of Chevy Chase, which has also created a ballad and, after many hundreds of years, helped give a comedian a pen name. Anyway, back to 1640. Attack became a rout. The English abandoned Newcastle in a panic and withdrew towards York. There was now no line the English could hold north of the Vale of York. Leslie quickly reached Durham, where lies England's most magnificent cathedral, which Leslie's fellow countryman Walter would of course describe as half church of God, half castle against the Scot. Events, meanwhile, had moved on. Pym and Oliver St. John had crafted their 1258 petition under the eyes of the Earl of Bedford, and then the 12 peers had signed it and sent it to the Privy Council in London. The petition gave a gruff summary of all the legion of things that were wrong with the nation, including the war itself, and demanded a parliament so that the author of these ills could be brought to trial, and the two kings united against the threat of popery. Said authors of the ills were not specified, but if you were to insert Strafford and Lord, well, you know, if the cap fits and all that. Within a few days, Charles's mailbag was bulging, and his advisers were in shock. There was not just the petition of the 12 peers, but a petition from 10,000 Londoners demanding a parliament and a letter from the Scots, making a respectful supplication to the king, asking for a treaty through which peace might be arrived at with the agreement of an English parliament. It is not a coincidence that all these things came together. The petition of 12 peers spookily found its way onto the streets of London. <gasps> To be brutal, Charles was surrounded by people sailing a tack very close indeed to the wind of treason and probably laughing shamelessly. There was communication between the Junto and the Scots through Say and Seal's son, Nathaniel Fiennes. Fiennes gave the Scots intelligence about the king's forces and surely there has to be treason, doesn't it? He also gave advice on how best to work with the peers for a common outcome. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but guilty as charged, my lad. Charles and Strafford, though, were inclined to be bullish. Bullish was, after all, Stafford's default setting. Charles filed off a series of letters to his privy councillors back in good old London town that arrived, smelling slightly of sulphur from the king's furious breath as he berated them for their lack of resolve and forcefulness in trying to extract money from the city. But really, outside of the firebrands such as Strafford, the peers around Charles and York knew a dead duck when they saw one, and this duck was dead. Charles still had 16,000 men under arms in York, but they were costing him 40,000 quid a month he didn't have. Also, not only were the Scots camped on English soil, but Newcastle was mighty significant as a place to have captured. You may have heard the definition of something super pointless as sending coals to Newcastle. The expression reflects the fact that almost all London's coal came from that city once upon a time. Well, if the Scots so chose, not anymore it wouldn't. And London, without the means of heating their houses as winter approached, was not an attractive prospect for anyone. The Scots not only had close control of the capital's heating supply, but also close control of the king's short and curlies. Still, 
Charles was determined to keep his pecker up and pointing firmly at the rebels. To dodge the Parliament demanded by the peers while seeming to fulfil the requirements of the 1258 Act, he called a council of peers at York, a magnum concilium, if you like, just like Billy the Conk. When they assembled on the 24th of September, his opening speech contained a mixture of reluctant acceptance of his situation and outraged defiance. On the one hand, he announced that a parliament would be called for November. On the other hand, he expected his great men, his peers of the realms here assembled, to gather round and help him throw these rebels out of their country. Isn't that what the peers of the realm are for? For so long as the Scotch army remains in England, I think no man will counsel me to disband mine, for that would be an unspeakable loss to all this part of the kingdom by subjecting them to the greedy appetite of the rebels, beside the unspeakable dishonour that would thereby fall upon the nation. Well, you'll soon find out many of his great men were very prepared to speak the unspeakable. North Stratford, of course, in him, fire and brimstone had found a home, and he tore into anyone who tried to describe the Scots as anything but rebels. Charles's mindset through this period has been described by Conrad Russell as a flight from reality. Once again, he was unable to see the situation through any other lens than his own. His deep sense of what it meant to be a monarch, his sense of honour, his incapability to understand that people opposing him believed what they thought as much as he did, his determination to follow the dictates of his conscience and nout else. In Stratford, he had found a man who set himself the task of being the indispensable ally who could make that determination a reality. However, the Great Council found a man who could bridge the gap between the king and the reality he hated so much. John Digby, the Earl of Bristol, was that man, despite his run-ins with Charles during and after the comings and goings of the Spanish match all those years ago and the royal persecution that had followed. Bristol understood something of his king's complicated mindset and led a moderate majority of peers gently suggesting that although it might be desirable to bring the Scots to their knees, we must now speak of the business as to men that have gotten the advantage. I am struck here by the use of the word gotten, a word I have reviled as an ugly modern invention, but which I now find, like Scotch, that it actually represents an older tradition. I am appalled. Charles was persuaded that there must be discussions with the Scots and was mollified and soothed by Bristol's promise to find an honourable solution and if a dishonourable one was all that was offered, sir, he would be obliged in honour and duty to preserve and defend the kingdom. He was also persuaded to appoint a commission to discuss the treaty with the Scots. Council quietly accepted the real reality rather than the optimistic one and appointed a commission largely composed of peers acceptable and sympathetic to the Scots. They met at the lovely Yorkshire city of Ripon, and they hammered out a deal, which wasn't particularly honourable, it has to be said. The deal accepted that the Scots would continue to hold the counties of Northumberland and Durham, but would advance no further in return. They would be paid 850 quid a day to maintain their army. Now, at first glance, this looks like the English paying for the privilege of being hit in the face. But from Charles's point of view, he was desperate to avoid further military humiliation and the loss of York. And from the reformers' point of view, having a Scottish army in the north of England was the only realistic way they had of forcing Charles to make concessions. Pym and the reformers 
were closely tied to the Scots and needed them. From their point of view, 850 quid a day was cheap at the price. For Strafford, defeat did not come easily. When Lord Keeper Finch encouragingly described the treaty as a hopeful treaty, he ripped into him and had a rant saying he could bring over his Irish army at two days' notice. Bristol calmly asked him if he could then assure a victory against the Scots and Strafford was forced to mumble into his tash that he couldn't guarantee any such thing. And so the Treaty of Ripon was signed on the 26th of October and the Parliament was set for the 9th of November. Everyone packed up and set off for home. The whole Council of York affair is very interesting. Sorry to refer to Conrad Russell again, but that man had a brain on him, didn't he? And no mistake. He remarked that the Council took the view that the King could simply not be sensible and therefore the peers needed to do what was required with or without the King. Russell called it the start of a habit of carrying on government as if the King was incapacitated. This is a habit the long Parliament will continue. Back in London, everyone's emotions have been up and down like a yo-yo. When news of the defeat at Newburn had come through, ah, there was something akin to panic. Extra guns appeared on the tower and fortifications at Whitehall. There was Scottish propaganda everywhere. When news of the calling of Parliament came through, just like last year, there was a great surge of joy. Lettuce Goring, wife of the future royalist general George Goring, wrote to her dad, Richard Boyle, the Earl of Cork. Richard Boyle was another firm enemy of Strafford and his government of Ireland, describing Strafford as a most cursed man to all Ireland and to me in particular. Lettuce was in London and she wrote, I cannot express to your lordship how the city is overjoyed at the news of our parliament. Surely, king, lords and commons assembled could finally get the ship of state back onto an even keel with a spot of common sense and goodwill. We start seeing whether or not that will be the case next week. Until then, gentle listeners, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and have a great week. <laughs>